You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Japan hosts its first ever arms fair, we hear about Tokyo's increasingly assertive defence posture and ask how its neighbours in Asia will respond. But we begin with Britain, which last week returned David Cameron to power with a majority for his Conservative Party. Mr Cameron has promised to renegotiate the terms of Britain's membership of the European Union and to hold a referendum on EU membership by the end of 2017. So what kind of reform package can Britain expect? Will it be enough to satisfy Mr Cameron's increasingly Eurosceptic party and to secure a yes vote in the referendum? And what are the possible consequences for Britain, for Europe and for Ireland? To discuss this, I'm joined by the editors of a new book, Britain and Europe, The Endgame, an Irish Perspective. Ireland's former ambassador to London, Dahi O'Kelly, and Irish Times columnist, Paul Gillespie, and by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. Dahi O'Kelly, this uh, election, how far towards this endgame or far into this endgame has it taken us? Oh, I think it brings us to the endgame. Uh, the, the question of the relationship between uh, Britain and the EU has been quite difficult now for a number of years. Uh, people are impatient in Brussels and elsewhere with, uh, with the British because they don't know what the British want. I think the election of Cameron with a, a majority government, with a promise to have a referendum uh, by 2017, following a renegotiation uh, with Europe, that actually brings us to the end game. And I think the end game is winnable. Um, if his demands are reasonable, uh, and all the signs are that he's not going to make demands which are totally unreasonable, then I think people will wish uh, to reach agreement with him. And I think, I may be wrong, because you can never foretell, but I think there is a good possibility that if he goes into a referendum campaign with a package in which he believes I think he can probably get a yes vote. The opinion polls currently seem to suggest that that, in fact, is exactly right, that uh, that a a substantial majority of the British people would, if they were asked now, vote in favour of staying in the European Union. Is there any danger that the process of renegotiation itself and the referendum campaign could change that? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, we know here in Ireland that you can't can't foretell what the, the outcome of a referendum is going to be. Uh, There's no guarantee that the renegotiation will be a success. I mean, a success is possible, but there is no guarantee that it will be a success. So it could go wrong. Certainly the opinion polls at the present time will all show that if there is a successful renegotiation, then uh, there will be a yes vote. Uh, But you you can't foretell, and I think it would be very silly of us to say at this stage that Britain is going to be within the European Union in five years' time. Uh, Paul Gillespie, how much do we know about the shape of the reform package that uh, David Cameron is looking for? Well, he's he's identified the elements in three or four speeches and and statements, uh, but he hasn't, as Dahi said, pinned it down. And that's frustrating and exasperating um, uh, from uh, from the Brussels European perspective. Um, he also has shifted his ground, uh, you know, in, in relation to political demands within his party and without his party in Britain. So now's the time for him to um, firm it up. Um, there, there are we identified in the book seven major demands, um, two or three of which involve 
really questions of basic principle for the EU concerning the free movement of peoples, for example, concerning the ever closer union norm or notion amongst the peoples of Europe, not incidentally amongst the states of Europe, uh, but other issues such as the role of parliaments, uh, the role of benefit fraud uh, and benefit claims in, in, in migration. Uh, uh, the role of red tape, this kind of thing, are all actually part of the Commission agenda now. And if there's a willingness by the British government to, to, to go and identify what can be got realistically and pitch their demands around that in principle, and if it's a, a rational process, that is doable. But of course, you're up against um, uh, peop some people who really want to get out of, uh, of the game. And you're up against also the, the running exasperation in Britain, in, 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 in Europe, including those who say, well, look, we aren't better off with, with, without the British. Can we just go back for a moment to this business of the free movement of people? Because that's been one of the issues that's, uh, that's clearly a potential sticking point because it's one of the, the four freedoms of the European Union, free movement of people. But if the demand were to be limited to uh, restrictions on benefit claims, uh, would that not be something that would be acceptable to many, if not most, member states? Well, we argue that there's a, you know, there's a strong case for multilateralizing these uh, negotiations. And certainly any influence that the Irish government or Irish people want to bring to bear on that, that would be in, in, the in, in their interest, rather than having it uh, bilateral negotiation between uh, Britain and the rest, that you get a set of reforms that are acceptable all around. And it seems to me in, in, in these areas that you mentioned, uh, movement of people's migration, benefits, that's all doable. It, it, but Paddy it, Smith, is, it not, uh, is there not a kind of a political imperative for David Cameron to achieve something which he can sell as, ha as having transformed or changed significantly Britain's relationship with the European Union? Uh, that's certainly the case. I mean, he, he has a, a, a back on his backbenchers at least 60 MPs who, who want to leave the European Union, whatever the result is, and a very large number of uh, other MPs who will will want what might be called a maximalist uh, reform program, and uh, it's going to be very difficult for him to uh, come up with a pragmatic uh, set of d d d demands like Paul has been talking about, uh, while at the same time satisfying satisfying backbenchers, um, and. I think I, I really do feel that that's a major challenge. And there is also the question which hasn't been banished yet and I think will be difficult to get rid of, uh, of, of treaty change because it's something which is very much anathema to uh, French, the Germans and other, other member states because a treaty change would open up other possibilities of treaty change. And so Cameron has to phrase his demands in such a way that he meets the expectations of the backbenchers but doesn't touch the treaties. Now, I don't know whether you can do that. I, I think that's very difficult. Uh, can he do that? I, I agree it's very difficult. I, I tend to think that there are a small number uh, of his own backbenchers and maybe some indeed in, 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 in his cabinet who just would never be satisfied as long as Britain remains in the European Union. I, I think they are there. They're not only in UKIP. Um, one possible way that he might be able to satisfy their desires without meeting them is to allow for a free vote, which might include not only his backbenchers, but might also include his cabinet. Now, there are all sorts of difficulties with this, uh, but there is an element within the Tory party at Westminster which wants Britain out of the Union. That's a reality. I don't think they're going to change. 
And what about the uh, the rest of the establishment? Obviously, business would like uh, is determined that Britain should remain within the European Union. But what about the press? Well, not all of business. Uh, there are some elements in business that. Uh, uh, would prefer to have uh, a free reign, as it were, without uh, European constraints. For example, we hear that most of the hedge fund managers are are in favour of a British withdrawal. The press on the whole is very Eurosceptic. I think what's happened in the United Kingdom uh, over the last number of years is there has been a move towards nationalism, if you want to put it that way. It's very clear in Scotland, where you had a, a rout uh, of the traditional parties in Scotland, be they Conservative or Labour. Uh, and the vote has gone to the Scottish Nationalist Party. But I think it was also an element in the Conservative victory. I think th uh, there was an element where uh, the Conservatives persuaded people in England that if they voted for Labour, they would get Labour plus the SNP. So, you know, there, there, there is a resurgence, if you like, I think, of English nationalism. Uh, and that, of its very nature, is separatist. Paul? Yeah, well, I agree. Uh, in, in the book, we analyzed the relationship between those developments in, in, in the UK, the nationalisms, and the EU question. And I think the uh, campaign accentuated that. It's, it's some elements of identity politics in it. It's unfair to label English nationalism and Scottish nationalism in the same way because there's a, there's a large civic or democratic component in the Scottish nationalism and there are varieties of nationalism. Uh, but, but if those dynamics continue and they're, they're, they're there in the Conservative Party, they're there in UKIP, uh, and if you get a surge in migration coming out of North Africa, Middle East, for example, uh, th that is, that's un uncertain. But the one thing one can say is that the British debate is underdeveloped and under on this question and underinformed. And I think uh, I, I would expect that the, the better informed it becomes, the more likely uh, stakeholder interests will you know, bear on it. Paddy, uh, you identified some of the, uh, the issues that could be problematic politically for other European Union leaders. What should be the red lines for the rest of the European Union in terms of what we're not prepared to do to keep Britain in? Well, I think it's core values, like uh, the free movement of labour. Essentially, we can't accept interference with that. Um, the, the, the fundamentals of the social um, programme, uh, we've got to understand that, that it's not just that other countries aren't going to be sympathetic to the idea uh, of the British, for example, that doctors should, should be able to work 48 hours a day. Uh, but, but if they allow it for Britain, what they're doing is they're creating a very unequal market. So from a market perspective, uh, a lot of these demands are just are just impossible. And so it, 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 the, that, will, that sort of thing will, will, will be uh, very important. The other thing I uh, have to say I would add uh, is that the, the hostility of the British to, the Euro to, to Europe in general uh, is reflected also in, in Tory insistence that they're going to repeal the, the Human Rights Act in, in Britain. And I think that's something that fellow Europeans um, were also members of the Council of Europe, uh, which which look on, in which the 
European Court of Human Rights resides. Which is, of course, quite separate and distinct from the European Union. But it's part of the same, if you like, anti-European mood that the Tories are are fanning. Uh, And that that is very dangerous and we shouldn't shouldn't have any truck with with, uh, their plans there. Would that repeal of the Human Rights Act have any knock-on implications for Ireland? Well, uh, indeed it would because the uh, Human Rights Act is enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement. And it's very questionable whether the British can can unilaterally uh, uh, withdraw from its provisions. Uh, if it it might be possible, I suppose, technically, for for them to leave the Human Rights Act in place in Northern Ireland, and and repeal it in the rest of of the UK. But it, it's a very difficult constitutional uh, issue. If uh, the negotiations fail and if Britain uh, does decide to leave the European Union, what happens next in terms of the uh, of the relationship? Once they decide we're getting out, what do they have to do then? Do they then have to negotiate their way out further? Yes, they do. And those negotiations will be exceedingly difficult uh, because I think, I mean, I think if Mr Cameron presents demands which are reasonable, I think people will try and react reasonably. But if at the end of the day uh, they withdraw from the the European Union, I don't think that they will find European leaders half as anxious to please them. And, I mean, the the extent of the interrelationship within the various countries of the European Union is enormous. I mean, it's largely a union of regulations. They are the things which regulate what's in your toothpaste or what's in your medicines, which enable you to sell a toothpaste made in Ireland in the Czech Republic. All of those regulations would have to be dealt with. Um, We've looked in our book at the relationship between countries like Norway and the European Union or Switzerland and the European Union, and we conclude that none of those relationships would be suitable for the UK. So I think it would be an exceedingly difficult negotiation and I think it could be a very fractious negotiation. You also conclude in your book that it would be very bad news for Ireland if Britain were to leave. Why? Well, in economic terms, we are very closely bound up uh, with the United Kingdom. Uh, We supply all sorts of goods at all stages of manufacture into their market and vice versa. Uh, they're They're our biggest market, for example, for Irish food. Tesco is the biggest market for Irish Irish meat in the world. Um, and likewise, they supply into our market so that, you know, our businesses are, are interwoven. Uh, over a period, it is inevitable uh, that different tariffs, if you like, different regulations and so on would arise between a Britain outside the European Union and an Ireland inside the European Union. And this could have all sorts of, of knock-on effects. That's just on the economic side. I think on the political side uh, is really where I'd be most concerned. Uh, Our historical relationship with Britain is not a good one. And it has not been beneficial to either country. Uh, Within the European Union, we have built up a relationship with the British, uh, which has been very beneficial to us in dealing with Northern Ireland, but which has also been very very beneficial to Irish business and Irish interests in Brussels because we frequently share common ideas, common legal system, common commercial system and so on. Uh, So that the Irish voice, if you like, on occasion is much heavier by virtue of the fact that the British are on the same side. Were they to, to, to leave the European Union, we might be in a rather more isolated position within Europe 
uh, that very important relationship between London and Dublin could be, I'm not saying it would be, but it could be weakened. But I think the real difficulty is Northern Ireland because we have together provided circumstances which has enabled the political parties in Northern Ireland to live together, work together for the benefit of everybody in Northern Ireland. That is exceedingly fragile and in my view will remain fragile for at least two generations. And it requires the two governments together to keep an eye on it all the time. As, for example, they did, if you remember, in, in the run-up to the agreements just before Christmas. Now, anything which puts London and Dublin just that little bit further apart could have, I think, deleterious influences Paul, in Northern Ireland. If Britain leaves the European Union, what happens to the United Kingdom? Um, again, the campaign has clarified this uh, uh, repeatedly, Sturgeon, this leader of the SNP, has said they, that Scotland would demand its own sovereign say on whether to uh, stay in, in the EU or not. It's very interestingly, Sinn Féin has echoed that demand in, in the north of Ireland. Um, and I think everyone, it's become far more clear in commentary and far more often said that where the uh, UK to leave on, base, on the basis of an English majority, the Scots would claim their own right uh, to decide, and that would open up the question of independence again. Uh, so a very interesting prop proposition going into this referendum would be whether you can hold the United Kingdom together if you get out of the European Union. And actually that might sway a lot of people, or a considerable number of people. If they stay, uh, they're still going to be outside the euro, for the foreseeable future, uh, in any case, um, is there uh, is there a, a capacity to 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 create a kind of a two-speed Europe for Britain and one or two others, and while the rest of it forges on ahead? I think there is a capacity. It's it's been there. It's well established that you have this variable variability. Uh, they have various opt-outs, as you know. They're not in, in the euro, out of Schengen, out of Justice and Home Affairs. A number of other st states have, have, have similar, you know, variation. Uh, but the rational core of their position, it seems to me, is uh, to draw the lines and to make the rules about how the euro zone, uh, assuming it's developing and deepening, relates to those outside it, and particularly the single market. And that, again, is where there's a common interest. But whether there's a political will to pursue that election, uh, that agreement is very much another matter. Paddy, many enthusiasts for European integration have uh, found the British presence in the European Union frustrating, and they've found them to be an obstacle towards progress, as far as they would see it. Is is there any upside to Britain leaving the European Union? Well, this is where I would take issue with with, with the book slightly, and and I think that it it perhaps in assessing the the pros and cons of of uh, Brexit it doesn't dwell perhaps enough on the uh, uh, the advantages of the British not being there, and that is simply that they are not and have never been what might be called clubbable. Uh, one of Cameron's main commitments is to uh, breaking this this commitment to ever closer. 
union. Uh, and that's symbolically quite important. It's politically, it's, it's, it's there as a, something that is, is symbolic, maybe in the, in the first clause of, of the Treaty of Rome. But it is actually more significant in the sense that it represents uh, a vision of how uh, Europe should function as, an, as a, a basically intergovernmental union rather than one in which decisions are pooled, in which there are increasingly decisions by, by uh, majority voting rather than, than unanimity. And Britain will, if it remains in the European Union, remain a permanent drag on the ability of Europe to integrate. Oh, that's an argument. Um, you hear it as well on the continent. It would be very much an argument of a de l'or. Um, we came to the conclusion as we were putting the book together, which is the result of about two years of study by, by a group of about 12, 14 people. We came to the conclusion really that it was on balance in Irish interests that Britain remain in, that the relationship between Britain and everybody else be clarified, particularly on things like ever closer union of the, of the peoples of the union or the relationship between the euros in and the euros out. And that if these issues can be clarified for the foreseeable future, then that will enable a Britain to be satisfied with where it is in the Union and enable the rest of us to get on with our business. And as these negotiations now unfold, and it looks like they're going to start pretty quickly, mm. uh, how, what does Ireland need to do and what role can Ireland play or, or should Ireland seek to play in these negotiations? Well, I mean, we need to examine very carefully what the British proposals are. Uh, we've also got interests, and they're not necessarily always the same as the British. In many areas they are similar, but not necessarily always the same. So I think we, can, we, 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 we need to examine their proposals as soon as we see them, and I hope the sooner the better we see them. Um, there are occasions when we can explain things to the continental Europeans about the British, which are not obvious to them, but which are in our DNA, as it were, because of our historical background. And there, there are very many occasions when, when people in France or Germany, wherever it might be, will come and ask us, what do they really want here? What does this really mean? And we can be helpful that way. I think we can be helpful explaining it the other way around. You know, we can act occasionally as, as a conduit, but we do have to be very careful. We are a different country. We are an independent country. We have interests which are not necessarily always synonymous uh, with, with, with Britain's. Um, but I think government here has made it very clear that the government here believes that it is, it is definitely in our interest that they stay in. So I'm certain we will try to be as helpful as possible. Paul, uh, you mentioned that, uh, that your conclusion is that uh, this process of renegotiation would be best if it is multilateralized. Does it offer an opportunity at all for the European Union to address some of the weaknesses in the structures that are there now? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, I heard Franz Timmermans, the vice president of the commission, being interviewed last week. Uh, and he, he, was, he, he said he wanted to do less and do it better. Now, uh, and by which he meant to do with regulation, to do with a single market type of regulation. So he has a, a very ambitious programme uh, to um, change, change and reform that area, which 
plays right into some of the British agenda. Uh, whether you can do less while you're simultaneously trying to deepen the Eurozone is a big conundrum. Uh, uh, so, uh, but actually, a lot of the Juncker agenda in this commission, and it's it's quite well organised, this new commission, uh, is, is, is capable of meeting uh, a number of the British demands in a multilateral way all round. But again, you go back to the questions that Paddy raised, is, is whether, you know, whether there is the political will in Britain and the political management capacity by Cameron uh, to, to turn that around into something that's going to be actually rather modest in the end, because some of the red lines we've talked about are simply unbreachable. Paul Gillespie, Dahi O'Kelly and Patrick Smith, thank you. Britain and Europe, The Endgame, an Irish Perspective, is published by the Institute of International and European Affairs in Dublin, and it's available at IIEA.com. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Japan this week hosts its first-ever arms show, Mast Asia, which runs for three days in the city of Yokohama. It comes as Japan's Prime Minister has started watering down his country's commitment to pacifism, which was enshrined in the Constitution after the Second World War. Last month, Tokyo agreed new defence guidelines with Washington that would allow Japan to come to the aid of US forces attacked by a third country or deploy military vessels to missions overseas. To discuss the changes, I am joined now from Tokyo by our correspondent, David McNeil. David, first of all, this arms show, how big a deal is this? Well, it's Japan's first international defense trade show. Um, it's showcasing some of the best of Japan's best, uh, some of the best of Japan's maritime military hardware. Um, it's not sort of generally known, I suppose, that Japan makes um, um, military hardware, some of which is very good. It makes probably the best diesel submarines in the world, although they're very expensive. Uh, it makes frigates, radar systems, amphibious planes. In fact, Japan builds. Uh, uh, um, military hardware for its own military, only it builds very small amounts of those things, including tanks and planes and so on. And one of the issues for them is that as uh, Shinzo Abe tries to loosen the shackles of the military in Japan, how can they get more bang for the book, if you like? How can they sell more of these units abroad? So one of the things that this conference will be doing is it'll be showing off Japan's um, uh, maritime defense equipment and its hardware and saying, look, we, we have the things that you need, and, and it'll be looking for international buyers. Uh, Shinzo Abe was in Washington last month, and uh, he has agreed to uh, modify or to update the guidelines uh, that govern uh, Japan's defense cooperation with the U.S. What are the most important changes? Well, I think one of the things that um, will take place is that the changes will remove restrictions on where Japan's military can operate, and it will, uh, they will allow Japan to defend allies, and this is always the, the plural word is always the one that's used in the official document, to defend allies for the first time since basically since the end of World War II, and that really is a huge deal. Uh, you know, that it will make Japan, it will make it easier for the military to provide logistical support uh, for, uh, and, and basically it's for the U.S. military and to operate as a sort of partner uh, around the world uh, in what Japan calls international peacekeeping operations. Now, there's a lot of vagueness about what exactly international peacekeeping operations might mean. Uh, but what we, what we think is, of course, that if there was a contingency, for example, in Korea, 
uh, or uh, anywhere around uh, East Asia involving uh, China. This is the fear that we could get involved in a conflict with China, that Japan would be able to cooperate more closely with its U.S. military partner in defending Japanese interests in that area, and then after that it becomes a little bit vague. So how important is it? I mean, I think this is a major a major turning point, really. Uh, anybody who's looking at this thinks that it's, it's a sign that Japan is moving away from, um, from its isolationism, from the pacifism, which has been the core of its sort of foreign policy since 1946, uh, and uh, moving into an area where it can offer uh, a more cooper- cooperative, um, a sort of proactive stance in the world. The, the phrase that Abe himself uses is proactive pacifism, which in English is a sort of vaguely Orwellian uh, uh, sense to it. Um, but what I think it boils down to is just more closely cooperating with its American partner. And so in theory, this means that uh, Japan could deploy uh, warships, for example, to the Middle East in support of an American operation? Yes, there have been. I mean, there's a lot of debates about exactly, as we said, what this means. And of course, the, the government, the, uh, uh, which is a coalition government uh, dominated by the conservative LDP, uh, is uh, there's tension in the government between the LDP and by its partner, Komito, which is ostensibly at least a pacifist partner. So a lot of the debates during these uh, security talks and so on and over this legislation was exactly how far can Japan go. So, for example, uh, would uh, uh, Japanese uh, frigates be able to patrol the Middle East? Would they be able to sweep for mines in the Middle East? You know, would that be considered a Japanese interest because Japan ports most of its oil from the Middle East and relies on American military might to sort of make sure the oil keeps flowing? And, and I think uh, a lot of people are still confused about this. And one of the interesting things is that um, there was a poll by NHK, the state broadcaster over here, uh, last weekend, where they asked people, you know, do you understand these uh, these changes that have happened? And, and over 50% of the people who they asked don't understand exactly what the implications are and what's going to happen. And I think in practice, it's going to be a bit of a legal minefield. But in terms of the broad thrust of the policy, in other words, loosening the shackles, does Mr. Abe have the Japanese people behind him? I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, all of the surveys that Uh, that have been done, that we've seen, NHK have just cited, but even by conservative newspapers, by the Nikkei, uh, um, and uh, of course by the more liberal newspapers like the Asahi, the Asahi of course has been the big liberal newspaper over here, they all show that uh, at least when people are asked a straight question, you know, do you want Japan to cooperate more closely with uh, its U.S. military partner abroad, these kind of questions, then most people are against them. Most people, uh, meaning over 60% or so, uh, uh, are are very worried about what exactly that means in practice. So if it's not popular politically, why is he doing it? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, anybody who's followed Shinzo Abe's political career for the last 20 years uh, knows, first of all, that he has had uh, something of a political obsession with um, shaking off the sort of political architecture that was laid down in 1946 by the Americans when they occupied this country after the war. And that, not just the pacifist constitution, but the uh, education system and a lot of other things as well. I think that's part of it. Uh, I think another part of it is the uh, the expansion, or at least in, in the Japanese government's terms, the expansion of China in East Asia, the sense that China is bumping up against 
the limits of uh, what history has imposed on it. The fact that this is going to implicate Japan in some way, Japan's interests, and if you look at the map, Japan's interests are very wide across East Asia, and it's got a huge uh, amount of uh, territorial claims over the region. I think that's another part, a major part will be China. And then, of course, the third element would be America. America is very keen for uh, Japan to take up a bigger, bigger burden of defense in this region. Uh, America wants Japan, has wanted Japan for many, many years to be a sort of more equal military partner. You know, there's a sense that some people, many people, we should say in the American uh, establishment, uh, regret the fact that Japan became a pacifist country because of America after the war. Uh, and I think that they're putting pressure on Japan to change. And those three things together are sort of coming together uh, at this point in time. And the opposition in Japan, the political opposition in Japan, which blocked those things in the past, is too weak to do anything about it. How has China reacted? Well, China's reacted as you might expect. They uh, are criticizing the uh, defense changes that Japan has made. You know, they, in their view, uh, America and Japan are trying to ring China with defense bases, uh, trying to hem China in to block its natural claims over the East, uh, the, uh, East Asian region. Uh, they, whenever Japan uh, does something uh, along these lines, along security lines, China always has something to say about it. And indeed, for this conference, which is coming up uh, tomorrow, uh, they, have, uh, they have reacted early as well. David McNeil in Tokyo, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. Don't forget you can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>